We're in Psalm 62 this morning. Psalm 62. My wife, Dana, was uh, talking with somebody this week that uh, we're very close to. I won't say who. It's no one in the room. So if you're wondering, I wonder if that was that conversation I had with her. It's not you. But I was talking with somebody that we um, are very fond of, and this person was telling her that he had now taken any money he had out of the stock market. And um, so I want to preach to you about managing your portfolio this morning. Um, if you're visiting, please know what a ridiculous joke that, that was. Uh, but he just said, you know, it is so volatile... And I'm seeing, and it's a very level-headed person about money. See, I'm seeing things I've never seen before, and there are just so many question marks that I'm out, totally out. And now here's the thing. Now, he may be wrong. It may be that, you know what, yet again, we sort of dodge another bullet, and uh, things kind of get back on track. But he may be right. And the only way we're going to know is as we wait. But it is totally out of our control. It's totally out of our power. I don't care if you have two PhDs in economics. It is out of our control. And we have to wait and see how it shakes out. Um, I was talking to an acquaintance of mine who is a pastor in our denomination in New Orleans a few weeks ago. We were at a, a get-together, and uh, I said, so I know everybody's asking you this, but let me pile on. What, what's going on? What's going to happen with the oil spill? And he said, you know, uh, on the front end, I thought, uh, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be another setback for New Orleans, but I think we'll be okay. And he said, as I'm watching how expensive seafood is getting, that affects everything. I mean, New Orleans is all about the hospitality industry, and that is driven by seafood. That's what New Orleans cuisine is made of. And so the ripple effects just go, he said, I don't know. But it's bigger than everybody. It's beyond everybody's control. And the reality is, hey, it may not get as bad as we think, but we won't know until it happens, and we're going to have to what? We're going to have to wait. And, And I mentioned this on the front end, but as we're sitting here, some of you may be right now, like at this moment as I'm saying this sentence, you may be so unbelievably preoccupied that you're not even hearing me. And it's highly likely that what's preoccupying you is something on which you are having to wait. You're having to wait for closure or an answer or a resolution. Or, you know, we were talking earlier during the baptism about God says that He'll give you the desires of your heart. And maybe what you're thinking about as we're talking about God, well, I do have a desire of my heart, and I haven't received that desire yet. And just even as we're talking about God, that's where your mind and heart went, and you're very preoccupied right now. Now, if that's the case, and if you're a little less preoccupied right now, this psalm we need. It's a psalm by David, King David, And we don't know all the circumstances surrounding when he wrote this and why he wrote this. But let let me say a couple of things before we read it, and then I'll read it. The first is this. Um, 
King David, as he, as he writes this psalm, is doing two things at once. On the one hand, he's doing something very private, sort of private and devotional. He is talking with his own soul. David's conferring with David and saying, okay, now look, what is reality? But as he's doing that, he talks to us. And keep in mind that when he wrote this, he's not writing a theological treatise. It is theological, but he doesn't write it to be an addition to a theology textbook. It's a song, and it, and it made it into Israel's hymn book. So on the, on the one hand, David's talking to David, but at points, it's almost like in movies where you know, the character looks at the camera and begins to talk to you, the viewer. You know, like when you're watching Bugs Bunny cartoons and he looks at the camera and says, you know, this means war, you know. He was, he was in the moment and now he's talking to you. That It's as if David is talking to himself, but he looks up at us and he talks to us. Okay, keep that in mind. And the second thing to keep in mind, and we're going to revisit this, is that often in the Old Testament, a participant or a writer will say something that's absolutely true in their setting as they're saying it. But as we read those same words through the lenses of the New Testament, we realize that that person said even more than they knew they were saying. And that happens in Psalm 62. Okay, look with me at this psalm, beginning in verse 1. For God alone... My soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would echo the psalmist, when he said that may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts 
be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength, our rock, and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me say this again. If, if, if this psalm is going to land with you personally, at some level you've got to, you've got to resonate and relate to what David is going through. And this is, you know, in round numbers, 3,000 years ago, he lives in the east, he's a king, his life is very, very different. He goes through things we don't and vice versa. So, all right, how do we relate to him? Let's start off asking this question. Do we know anything about what he's going through that's making him talk about waiting and, in a sense, powerlessness? And we don't get a lot of detail, but what we get is in verses 3 and 4. Look in verses 3 and 4. And, and this is an example how in this psalm he speaks to different parties. He speaks to himself. He speaks to the people. At this point, he's speaking to enemies. And what does he say? He says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now, that's not a lot of detail, but if you do a little deduction, what does that probably mean? That doesn't seem to be describing that you know, those pesky Philistines, boy, they always have it in for me trying to, you know, take my head off. And those Philistines are after me again, or the Moabites are after me again. And so, uh, God, please protect me. Because it talks about, you've got people that smile on the outside. They bless you on the outside, and inwardly they are cursing you. And it talks about these are people that really take delight in trafficking in falsehood. Now, you know, the Philistines, that would not be their approach. They would tell you straight up, we hate you and we're going to try to kill you. you know, no, no falsehood, no smiling, no, no blessing outwardly. So what does that sound like? It sounds like he's talking about betrayal. That, that in David's own circles, with someone who can get to him, Somewhere in his kingdom, maybe in his own palace, there's someone who is smiling and blessing on the outside, and inwardly they're cursing. And it's somebody that wants to take him down from his high position. And understand, the stakes are high. You know, this is, this is a day where war and death is not as much from afar. There are no rifles, there are no pistols, there's archery, but this is like you know, spears and swords coming through you. Now, here's the thing. As a king, if you're the most powerful man in the land and you know something like that might be percolating, you can guard yourself with soldiers. You know, like how, how do I sleep at night and have any peace of mind? I'll post soldiers around me all the time. But, but here's the problem. If there's a coup, if there's a plot, what if the soldiers are turned? What if the guards are turned? And, and what you're getting a picture of is something that is relevant to everybody in this room. And it's this. Even those with power constantly bump into powerlessness. Uh, even those that seemingly with the most control in the room or in the neighborhood or in the business experience 
in a very felt way, the loss of control. He's the most powerful man in Israel. And he's saying, something is brewing. And they are playing for keeps. All right, so, so what's the action plan? In other words, if we know that's going on, what are we going to do about it? And it's interesting what David says. On the one hand, he's speaking to himself, but he's very consciously speaking to God's people. And he says, let me tell you what not to do. Now look in verse 9. And these two verses may sound, they sound very Old Testamentish. And so it may, it may sound like this has no relevance to anything I'm waiting on. I would say it has all the relevance in the world. Listen to this, verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Poor people, unimportant, marginalized. Those of high estate, rich, powerful, hold the cards, are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Important people are a breath. Unimportant people are a breath. People are vapors. All right, verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. And that's actually one of those biblical commands that you can kind of feel good about usually. You know, there's so many commands that we don't feel good about. You know, be gentle. You know, don't, don't curse, things like that. But when you read, you know, don't do extortion, you might feel like, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good on that. It's kind of like when you read about, you know, if, if your ox gores your neighbor, here's what you do, and you feel like, I, you know, I think I, I think I shine in that area since uh, I don't have an ox and, and don't plan to buy an ox, actually. All right, so put no extortion, uh, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. Uh, but then the next thing says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. What, and what is David saying? This is so insightful. David is sort of looking up from his parchment or whatever and looking up into the camera at us saying, I know, I know from experience that if you are going through the felt loss of control, the felt loss of power, I know what you're tempted to do. I know it from experience. If you feel powerless, you're going to try to grab power. If you're experiencing the loss of control, you're going to try to grab for control where you can find it. Where will you typically grab? You'll, you'll either try to do it through people that you think can give you the power you need, give you the control you need, that you can leverage control through them because they have influence, or through money and stuff. When you think about how different you feel when a giant bill comes along, just like, you know, it's like I cannot win. Like every time I just start to get a little bit of traction, my knees get taken out from under me. Look at this. Now think about the difference in that feeling versus when you get unexpected money. And it's just, you know, your heart is filled with glee. Just, there's this automatic lift of, it's just all this potential, what might I do with it? But I know one thing, I feel better, way better. And he says this, don't do that. He, he, he uses almost, almost what, what you would call uh, counseling language. He says, don't set your heart on it. If your heart, everybody's heart's like a vacuum pump. It just has to be on something to derive meaning and energy and hope. And he says, do not put that vacuum pump 
on anybody. He said, whether people are rich or poor, if you set them on scales, the, the, people are so light, the scales go up. People are of such little consequence, ultimately, it, it won't even weigh the scales down. He's the most powerful man in Israel. He says, trust me on that one. Or money? Yeah, it could be through sinister means, extort money or rob it. And maybe you've never done that, but every person in this room has gotten a little more money at some point, and it is so compelling to set your heart on it. And he says, do not do that. So what do I do? If I don't do those things, what is the action plan? And it's... It's as if David, still looking at the camera, says this, Look, if you're experiencing powerlessness, you're not going to find power in other people. If you're experiencing the loss of control and you're having to wait on something and you're at the end of your rope, money is not going to give you the control that you want. And he says in verse 11, Here is the deal. And this is, this is kind of strong. I want you to hear this language. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And you have to understand, again, this is from a king who was a realist. You have only to read about his life and read what he wrote to understand that he was not a pie-in-the-sky man. He was accustomed to the sight of governing and hard choices and hacked up people on the battlefield, he understood reality. And he understood, if you feel the loss of power, all you are feeling is what has always been the case. Because power belongs to God. And this psalm, and so many of David's psalms, are just peppered with these metaphors that capture this. What do you get at the very beginning? Verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And when David writes about fortresses, that's not a neat metaphor. I mean, he knew the feeling of being behind a wall or behind a rock. And the Philistines are trying to get you and the arrows are coming in and they're going tink, 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 and they're all aimed at you. And the reason you're not dying is the fortress. That's a very real, tangible metaphor to him. And he's saying, God is mine. And it's beautiful. He doesn't just say he's a rock. He's a fortress. He's a hope. Personal. My hope. My fortress. Verse 6 again. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress. I shall not be shaken. Now, I want you to look up for a second. And I want to ask you to be very honest, not verbally out loud, but internally. Does this land with you? If you are waiting on something right now, does that land with you? And it may be that even as you hear it, you say, I I love those images. I'm I'm familiar with those images that he's, he's not just a rock, he's not just a tower, he's... He's our tower. He's my fortress. He's he's my security, my refuge. I like that. But that does not resonate because of this waiting. Now, I've said this in here before, but this is a 
appropriate time to say it again. My vote for whatever that matters, my vote for the two hardest things in the Christian life, at least for me personally, are forgiving and waiting. And you know, they're both forms of suffering. And if you're suffering with waiting, it might be that as you hear, God is powerful. We don't have the power. God has the power. You might say, yes, but I don't know how to move ahead with that. Now, I mentioned it at, uh, at Creed's baptism that, that we have had a lot of those lately. And God, in the last year and a half, has just given a lot of babies to this church. Praise the Lord. What a great, great, you know, uh, for, for nursery workers who feel like they got stretched. I, listen, I believe you. But it's a great problem. Um, and I have heard because of that comments, I think, with absolutely no malice aforethought about, man, there must be something in the air at your church or something in the water. Uh, I would really exhort you not to make those comments because the part that goes unseen is uh, that we have families and it is the desire of their heart to have children. And right now, they wait And it may be that as they go to a doctor, the doctor says, I don't know what it is. Or it may be the doctor says, I think I know what it is, so let's do this. And they do that. But then after there's a procedure or a treatment, now we have to do what? Wait. And that's a form of suffering. Waiting. Or it may be that uh, you have a parent who is hitting retirement age who's been very responsible, who has socked money away in a 401k, and now their savings have just been torpedoed through things that have happened out of no one's control. They had control over trying to make responsible decisions, try to plan for retirement, and now they're just watching it diminish before their eyes. And so you're wondering, well, if they run out of resources, will that put everything back on me to take care of them? We don't know, but what are we going to have to do? Wait. And that's a form of suffering. Powerlessness. Let me be very personal, if I may. Uh, Those of you who have been here for a while will know something of this, but uh, my father has terminal cancer. And the, the, the pace of his deterioration is really increasing. And I'm watching it before my eyes. And when he... Let me get this fixed. That's going to be horrible to listen to online for somebody. Some jogger somewhere just grabbed his earbuds and screamed audibly and... Well, listen, pal, no one said this would be easy. All right. Uh, The sermon. I'm watching my dad deteriorate, and um, when he crosses a certain threshold, he will go into hospice, and he will finish out his days there. But how long till you get there? Because the thing is, until that threshold is crossed, it gets more and more labor-intensive. It really does. And so I'm 
waiting. Are we going to cross that line? Yeah, it is inevitable. We will cross that line unless he passed away beforehand. But when? And what will it involve? We'll have to wait and see. And if you are waiting, and as we're waiting, and that's a form of suffering, is it enough just to hear, hey, listen, God has all the power. Is that true? Yes. Do we need that? Yes. But what else do we need? I want to read you something from the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is from uh, the story of the magician's nephew. And it, it's, it's later in the series of books, but it's, it's events that are before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. main character is a boy, little English boy, Diggory Kirk, and he becomes Professor Kirk in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, meets a friend named Polly, and they end up going on some unforeseen trips into these different worlds. And one thing you learn at the beginning of this story is that Diggory's mother is sick. She's very, very sick. And among other adventures, Diggory and Polly and some other people from England end up making it into... It's really not even Narnia yet. They come into darkness... And they see Aslan the lion, and they watch him create Narnia. In fact, they watch him sing it into existence. And as Diggory sees how powerful Aslan is, he starts to have this hope that he, the lion, could do something for my mother. If he can create a world by singing, he could help my mother. Well, Narnia is created, all these things happen, and then Aslan gives Diggory a job to do. It's a job to actually help fix a problem that Diggory created. And so Aslan comes to him and he says, Are you ready? Big lion. Yes, said Diggory. He had, he had, had, for, an, uh, he had, had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Now, up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son... My son, said Aslan, I know. Now, what, what, what did you get there? You've got Diggory saying, he has the power, he can help. And he sees those feet and those claws, he's got the power. But what landed? It was seeing this power harnessed to this love. And in this whole psalm of Psalm 62, David talks to himself. He talks to his own soul. 
He talks to the people trying to betray Him. He talks to us. He talks to God's people. But it's only at the end that He addresses God. And what makes Him do that? Look again in verse 11, especially verse 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That, that term in the Old Testament, this, this has come up several times, translates one Hebrew word. It is the most wonderful little Hebrew word because it's the word for how God's love is not generic. It is this love that, if I can be corny, you know, will pull up in your driveway and will knock on the door. And if you don't open, it might jimmy it open. And will come find you, even maybe as you're howling out, no, 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 no. And will say, oh yes, I love you. I love you even if you don't love me. And what's going to change you is because I'm first going to love you. We love Him because He first loved us. It is this initiating, powerful, tenacious, life-and-death, blood-bond love. And when David talks about that, he goes from third person or first person, second person, God, that belongs to you. Now, you remember at the beginning that we said sometimes Old Testament writers or or a character will say more than they realize they were saying? How does that happen here? And how does that help us? Look in verse 6. It's talking about God. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And then verse 7, on God rests my salvation. He says He is my salvation. On Him rests my salvation. And then look back in verse 1. From Him comes my salvation. Now, when David wrote that, what is salvation? It's not going to church and having your sins for you. That's probably not the main thing he's thinking of in this context. He's thinking, save me from the guys trying to kill me. You're the one that made me king. You're the one that made these promises about me sitting on this throne. I can't sit on the throne if they kill me. Save me from those guys. And as he writes that, that is true and right and good. But as we read this through the lenses of the New Testament, and if you're sitting here waiting on the child or the significant other or the diagnosis or the job or the relationship to change and you're suffering, how can we be helped? And I want you to, it's such a corny thing to say, put your thinking cap on for a second, as your second grade teacher used to say. And think about this. Um, When Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, and his mom or dad walked out the door, and they they, would call him to dinner, they didn't yell, Jesus, Jesus. That's an English version of a Greek version of his name. That's not what they called him. 
my pronunciation might be off, I'll be the first to admit, but they would have said something like, Yeshua, Yeshua. In the Old Testament, we translate that Joshua. Uh, in Greek, it's Jesus, and, we, and then we turn that into Jesus. But his name was, you know, the one on the birth certificate was Yeshua. And what David wrote, saying more than he could have ever dreamed, is he says, God is my Yeshua. In verse 1 he says, My Yeshua comes from God. That's amazing. That He is my salvation, and salvation comes from God. God is the salvation who sends the salvation. We have that, guys. And here's the amazing thing. What if things like salvation, refuge, hope, rock, what if those are not concepts? What if those are an actual person? Because here's the deal. If you are sitting here and you're dealing with infertility or joblessness, or a possible firing, or a ticking time bomb of a relationship. And that's your suffering. What is big enough to make you experience both the power of God and the steadfast love of God? It is to come to grips with the gospel. In a verse that I quote a lot because I think we need to hear it a lot, is in Romans, and it's where it says, God, who did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? That the only way that you can know that if we want a baby and we don't have a baby, but we can trust Him, or... I'm trying to be responsible. I'm trying to provide for my family. And I've lost my job, or I think I'm about to lose my job. But we can trust Him. The only way you can really know that is to have a cosmic demonstration of His power and His love coming together. That is the cross. The cross is where an almighty God crushed a man a manifestation of His power. And the reason that man is being crushed instead of us is because of His steadfast love. That's the only thing that's big enough to enable you to wait well. What, is, what, what does David say for us to do? And I want to end with this. Kind of what's, the, what's the take home? First thing is this. We've already said this, verse 10. Put no trust. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Don't go after low estate people. Don't go after high estate people. In other words, everybody in this room has a go-to savior. Everybody in this room has a go-to rescuer. And David is saying, repent of that. Repent of that. A man I know in Mississippi who is what we would call not a farmer, but a planter. Sort of a gentleman farmer in the Delta. He was converted later in life, and one of the things that God used in his life to bring him to himself was he overheard 
some men who worked for him when they didn't know that he was around. He, he overheard one of them say after a lunch break, well, let's get back to work on this white man's Jesus. They called his farm his Jesus. And I don't know if these men had any theological education, but they just made a profound point. That it can be your work or your parenting or your goodness or your volunteerism, but there is something that we leverage to get a sense of, I'm not as out of control as I feel I am. David says, fool's errand. Put it, put it down. Put it down. And then do what? And here's the part that is both horrible and glorious. It's horrible for Americans, and it's what Americans need. And I say that as an American. He says, wait. No! (laughs) I want an action plan with 11 steps that are alliterated. And you're saying, wait. Just listen to this. This is only from the Psalms, and there's a lot more where this came from. We who hate to wait, the Psalms. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The evildoers shall be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And listen to this one because he says, by the way, this is hard. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Last one. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. It is often the case that when we're suffering and we turn to Christians and say, what should I do? We often try to comfort and help each other with action plans. Sometimes we need to help each other by saying, if He has you waiting, wait. And what else did it say? Pour out your soul to Him. talks about waiting in silence and pour out your soul to Him. Which is it? Yes. There's a time to wait in silence. And there's a time to say, if you sent your precious Jesus for me, I'm going to lay this out from A to Z. You know it anyway. And say, have mercy on me. And I just want to end by saying this again. Everyone in this room waits. But if you are feeling powerlessness right now because of something in your life, all that you're feeling is what has always been true of us. Power belongs to God. Trusting Him is not trying to leverage power. It is to come with empty hands before Him and say, I am going to wait on you because you have all the power And you have all the love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, seal these truths in our heart. We who are not good at waiting, 
enable us to wait on you. Even if it parches our throats, even if it dims our eyes, enable us to wait on you and in you find courage, hope that Jesus will be the one in whom we are made secure. We pray this in His name. Amen.